Why are you here? Are we gonna live life in fear or are we gonna stand up and make sure we're heard? Are we gonna hide or live life by our word? With integrity we can be all that we can see in our mind's eye until we're finally free. We can become whatever we choose once we know the choice lies within me and you. Hello, hello, all you unapologetically human pleasure monkeys out there. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Unapologetically Human podcast with Dan Boyvin, as always. Today, I have for you another interview that I actually recorded back in August of 2018. And... This one is with a good friend of mine, Dr. Sophia Raitson, who happens to be a neuroscientist. So she's a brilliant woman that I love having chats with, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Um, There's just a few things I want to explain first. Part of the reason that I was hesitant a, a, a small part. There's a lot of other shit going on. But part of the reason I was hesitant to edit this episode is that Sophia and I are both very analytical people. And when we normally would just have conversations, we'd have like these super long conversations that'd be awesome. The type of conversation that made me want to start a podcast and be like, fuck, I got to like get these recorded. Like people would, I think, really like to hear these. And in like a normal conversation and just be like flowing, flowing, flowing. But this is actually the second time that we sat down to record a podcast episode because the first time I was like totally just unprepared. And as many of you may have experienced whenever you try to like record something or put something out there, it becomes more challenging than you know, like when you have like a camera in front of your face, all of a sudden you're like kind of freeze up. And so the first time that we recorded that happened a little bit and it just, it totally didn't flow. And it just was like, we, we recorded for like an hour and a half and we're just like, yeah, this just like is not working. Like we can't use this. We'll have to try again. But this one was pretty good. And part of the reason that I want to share that with you and that Sophia and I actually talk a little bit about it in this episode as well, is that I think it's really important for us to have examples of media and whatever it might be that people are creating out there that I want to really help to shift with this podcast is to just show some of the messiness and show some of the the mistakes and and talk about it and you know help to remove the veneer of perfection that our culture has created for a lot of us this idea that the most of the things we see have there's a lot of big budgets behind a lot of stuff that that we've seen and 
there's just this idea that sort of everything has to be perfect when obviously it doesn't. And the idea that it does tends to give a lot of us like a paralysis from creating anything because it really feeds into the feelings that we have that the thing we're wanting to do or the thing that we create isn't good enough and really the this deep down deeply seated feelings within ourselves that we're actually not good enough so i say fuck that shit get messy make mistakes be unapologetically human and be brave enough to suck at something when you're starting out like me i literally just fucking recorded this whole intro without switching my computer to my professional microphone so it recorded it from like the shitty little microphone on the side of my computer so when i played it back i was like oh why is it so quiet what the fuck (laughs) but anyway this episode was like i thought it would be a little bit challenging for me to to put together and to edit because we actually recorded about three and a half hours and I was like fuck that's a lot I'm gonna have to like go through and we had sort of quite a number of side conversations about what we were talking about or we're going to talk about or we lost our train of thought a couple times and we're like how are we gonna connect what we just started talking about from like where we came and I think I did a pretty good job, and I think it's a great conversation that you'll enjoy. So, on that note, here we go. Hey, what's up, guys? You're listening to Unapologetically Human, and I'm your host, Dan Boyvin. For those who don't know me, I came from a family with a history of mental health and addiction issues, and have struggled with depression, anxiety, and self-worth issues my whole life. Over time, I've learned that so many people I know have had similar experiences, and experts are saying that as a society, we're dealing with a mental health epidemic. So my mission with this podcast is to define some of the issues we're facing and their underlying causes and solutions to those issues, as well as who's working on them. And in the process, I hope to help you understand yourself a little bit better, understand others and the world that we live in a bit better. So on the show today, I have a good friend of mine here named Sophia Raitson. Sophia is a recent PhD graduate from the Institute of Medical Science and the Collaborative Program in Neuroscience at University of Toronto. Her graduate research focused on the neurochemistry of depression, preceded by a Bachelor of Science at the University of Toronto specializing in psychology and behavioral disorders. She also minored in philosophy, studying topics such as existentialism, theories of mind, metaphysics of science, and Buddhist philosophy. So she brings a diverse academic perspective on psychology and mental health to the table. She also brings her personal experiences as a side dish, having had intermittent periods of withdrawal and depression throughout high school. While Sophia's educational background is mostly scientific, she also has a creative side. Sophia is an aspiring artist with acrylic paints as her preferred medium, and she also plays the piano and is starting to write music. So thanks so much for being on the show today, Sophia. Thank you for having me. So just so you know, Sophia and I just had a really large dinner. So if you're any burps or farts throughout the podcast, don't mind that. And it's all Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, well, like I said, 
I, I kind of want to talk about that. This is uh, this is round two of us trying to record this podcast because we we tried to record it last week and I'm a horrible procrastinator, so I was not prepared enough as well as I should be for the podcast and it didn't go as well as I was hoping it would. Um, so I kind of want to talk about that a little bit to just talk about the reasons why, because I've been... I've been struggling with procrastination for like a really long time and I've been thinking especially recently about what are the reasons why because it's like with this show it's something that I really want to do I'm really passionate about the reasons why I want to do it but I can't get myself to stop procrastinating so I'm sitting around a lot recently and I'm thinking like what is the problem like I feel like I'm talking to a brick wall when I'm talking to myself trying to get myself to do this work. And it's basically because of fear, right? There's some underlying fears of actually sitting down to do the work because you're creating something and makes you have to get out of your comfort zone. And that's when the fear of judgment comes in and there's some anxiety about that and like putting yourself and your ideas out into the world. So... I think that's definitely part of it, but I just kind of want to share the process with people a little bit to bring them on the inside a little bit. Because normally, whenever someone puts something out there, the conventional wisdom and business sense is that you put out your product and you make it look all shiny and perfect, like it's all ready to go. But I think there's some value in seeing the human side of like, struggling through your fears and your anxieties and procrastinations and and fears of judgment to create something and put it out there. So round 2. <laughs> Fight. So they do say 3 is a charm, so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this episode might cut to round 3 in a moment. Um, so something that I've been really interested in for most of my life is psychology and mental health because of my own family history and my own experiences with these types of things. But in more recent years, also looking at what are the political and social issues that underlie some of the problems that people are dealing with as well. So could you give a little bit of like a background on your schooling and some thoughts that you have about mental health in relation to some of the political and social issues that we're seeing? So uh, my schooling on the topic began from the side of psychology and um, maybe let's like break it down because that's a very that's a lot of questions all in once. Okay. Like, if I start talking about all of that, I'll be, like, giving a monologue for, like, the next... That's fine. Like you can, can also... You can talk for a while. Like, that's... Okay. that's okay. That, so, that's one of the things, as far as, like, actually, if I am a good interviewer on that side of things, my job is to ask good enough questions that I do provoke you to talk, to talk for, a while for a while and, and have an interesting okay. conversation I'm not, as well, okay. right? Okay. So, okay. So, okay. I don't... I don't know how much I can speak about the political influence on mental health, per se. Right. I don't think I have any knowledge in that area. I can speak to 
like mm, talk treatment approaches. I can yeah, like I can talk about like I can talk so, about the like so, the, okay, the biopsychosocial model and that that's our best scientific understanding and how like I feel I like can, we we can get I, there. I, and I can talk about like social disconnection, but like I just really feel like I cannot speak to like bigger political things or like or at least I'm not sure of what you're alluding so to. So let me rephrase the question. What if I were to instead say, so can you give us a little bit of a background on your schooling and do you have any ideas or thoughts on what you think some of the underlying reasons are for what's being called the mental health epidemic that we're seeing right now? Yes, that that I can... <laughs> So my schooling began from the psychological perspective. I did my bachelor's in psychology. It was a science, not an arts program. So it was still uh, related to neuroscience. But the psychology courses focused on things like cognitive psychology, social psychology. So the approach was very much understanding it at like the level of those kind of concepts, not uh, neurochemistry, like altered brain structures, although I covered neuro- neuroscience in my neuroscience course, but like those weren't specifically related to psychology. It was just kind of more understanding the brain and how it works. And then uh, I was also minoring in philosophy, and I had a one of the subjects that interested me the most was existential philosophy. I just had a deep personal interest in it. Uh, I guess it started in high school and I was dealing with some of my own issues with depression, withdrawal. And uh, that was kind of like the philosophy of the meaning of life. And the like, uh, some may think it's the philosophy of despair, but uh, I see it as <laughs> this philosophy of how to take control and create your own meaning in life. Um, and I also took Buddhist philosophy, which I'm increasingly understanding just how incredibly useful it is as a philosophy. Uh, not necessarily like it's also practiced as a religion. And I just like some of the kind of philosophical ideas behind it, not like follow any specific doctrine. Uh, but then uh, I was in a co-op program and I did my work terms in uh, a research lab that was studying the neurochemistry of depression. So that was very much at the neurochemical level. We were doing brain imaging and brain imaging of a very specific enzyme in the brain that's been implicated in depression and there's antidepressants that act on it. So I kind of got immersed in that whole biological perspective of mental illness and I ended up continuing to do a PhD in that same lab where I was studying the neurochemistry of depression. I did some rat studies and then I did a clinical trial in patients with depression but the clinical trial was still neurochemically oriented. We were measuring uh, an enzyme in the brain as our outcome measure not necessarily concerned as much well we were concerned with symptoms and wanted to see improvement but the study at its core was still neurochemical what were you guys searching for like what was that we were so there is an enzyme called monoamine oxidase and my supervisor discovered uh, now over a decade ago 
that the levels of the enzyme are elevated in the brain in depression by uh, anywhere from like 25 to 40% on average. Uh, not every depressed person has the elevation, but a substantial portion. And this is the enzyme that breaks down serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, which are the brain chemicals involved in mood and that make us happy. And for decades, it's been theorized that there's a deficiency of those brain chemicals in depression, but there has never been a mechanism found or proposed that could account for why they would be low. And so the enzyme being elevated, this enzyme that breaks them down, that's a very good explanation because if there's more of the enzyme, it's breaking down more or more of those brain chemicals. And even before this discovery, one of the more effective antidepressants that's been around for decades is actually an inhibitor of that enzyme. So we knew from a clinical perspective that targeting that enzyme was uh, useful for treating depression. It was theorized that the chemicals the enzyme breaks down are involved in depression and then this was kind of the the missing piece we uh, basically so I did my PhD at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health I was which is affiliated with the University of Toronto and they've developed a brain imaging technique to measure specifically just that enzyme and that's when my supervisor was able to conduct the study and make that discovery Uh, which is huge and super interesting how, like, you can have a new technology and it substantiates what's been theorized for decades and brings together all these other pieces. Um, But towards the end of the PhD, I was kind of thinking back to my days of studying psychology in my undergrad and taking philosophy and wondering kind of like, how it all fits together in terms of how we deal with mental illness and how we treat it. And uh, yes, we are, as you mentioned, in the midst of what's being called a mental health epidemic. And antidepressants are the number one, I think, prescribed psychiatric medication. Yeah. Um, And... The lifetime prevalence of depression is estimated at anywhere between like 10 to 15%. So 10 to 15% of the people are estimated to have depression at some point in their life with 4 to 5% of people having depression at any given time point, uh, which is huge. And now antidepressants are prescribed by family doctors. So even without a psychiatric consultation or anything, they're just prescribing. And that's talked a lot. This issue is talked a lot about because they're, there's an opinion that they are being overprescribed. Right, because that's just from like GPs, like general yeah, practitioners. Yeah, they're like, oh, a person is stressed? Oh, let's give you an antidepressant. Oh, you're feeling a little sad? Let's give you an antidepressant. Or you're like a little bit anxious? Let's give you an antidepressant. Let's like not try to understand why the person is sad, what's going on in their life. Send them for some therapy, maybe direct them to other like resources to work on issues in their life. They're just being prescribed antidepressants by their GPs without any specialist consultation. And, um, yeah, like something like the prescription rate of antidepressants in Ontario 
has doubled or something like that over a span of 10 years, but depression rates have not doubled. So it just goes to show that the use of antidepressants is disproportionately increasing. And it would have been all fine if antidepressants were actually effective. (laughs) But the more studies are being conducted, the more and more we're becoming aware of how they're not as effective as initially thought. And even initially... (laughs) Um, when they were approved for treatment of depression, they helped about 60% of people. Right. Yeah. I was just going to ask you about that because I've heard on a few different occasions and, and read about how the idea that the reason for these mental health issues like depression being due to a chemical imbalance, which like the, the research you said, you guys your your supervisor came up with uh, or, or found like something that kind of proved that like there's an enzyme that's breaking down the feel-good chemicals in our brain like serotonin and dopamine. So that's a factor, but it's actually never been something that's been confirmed by any um, consensus of any scientific body that it's an actual chemical imbalance in the brain that is at the heart of the issue. And isn't that because the treatments work for only some people because they don't like the, the antipsychotic and antidepressant drugs and stuff like that, because they don't work for so many people as well, that that's not necessarily the, the main, the main cause of it or the main issue. So I think there's a bit of a like chicken and egg question in terms of a neurochemical imbalance. I mean, If you think that ultimately psychology is mediated by the brain, then you would expect that any change, anything, any any behavior, anything has some underlying neural scientific, neurochemical, neuroanatomical, neurobiological underpinnings to it. I guess neurobiological is the broadest term that encompasses it all in the word I was looking for. So yeah, so if you like think that all of a psychology, personality, our behavior has neurobiological underpinnings, then of course, if the person's mood is different, then there is going to be something different in their brain mediating that. But there is a difference like between saying there's a chemical change underlying the observed change in a person's mood versus saying that the chemical change came first and is the core cause or like what, why is there a chemical change? Right. Is there a chemical change because there's a faulty gene producing too much of the enzyme that's breaking down too much of the chemicals? Because that would be a purely biological explanation would imply that there's like some physiological process gone wrong in the brain that's like unrelated to things like the person's social context. Yeah. The, and, and, it's mani- and the manifestation is a psychological symptom. Just like you can have like... So it's environmental... As well as biological. And it's like, which is... But, but yes, and the environmental, it. it could also be like different kinds of things environmental. Like, 
Was it exposure to some chemical in the water that like adversely impacted the brain? Like, or was the person eating too much iron and too much iron is toxic to the brain and it adversely impacted the biology of the brain? And one of the symptoms of that is low mood. Or is there other factors like stress? Because and oh and actually I might add there is no difference in the gene encoding that enzyme between people who are depressed and people who are not depressed. So the elevation in that enzyme is not genetic. Right. It's it's not genetically. Right, and that's what I meant by environmental. Not necessarily like coming into contact with a chemical in the environment or like eating something that has a a compound in it that changes the brain. I also meant kind of like yes. Like your social setting and and things that cause you stress and things like that. Yes, right? and I guess I would further differentiate between the environmental causes because how you're gonna treat it is, rel- like you you like say it was too much iron, versus stress. The appropriate treatment would be different. So they're both environmental right. causes, but one is a chemical cause, and so like it's appropriate to fix that chemical imbalance that's around arising due to like this external environmental chemical mm-hmm. that you're putting into your body versus if it's your social environment or stress at work or something like that, then the more appropriate treatment might be to teach you coping mechanisms, help you grow and learn how to deal with that environment, uh, motivate you to make change to your life rather than give you an antidepressant that covers up which not the thing that's not the underlying cause but just the manifestation um word (laughs) yeah um Um, so i don't know how to how to segue this exactly but um yeah i feel like i was talking i was like i feel like i was trying to make a point and i don't know if that was the point i was going towards or not but well you were talking about that's why I kind of this, this is why it's hard to yeah, to stay like, to yeah, not go on like, a tangent and to like, like talking then it doesn't matter but no. like if you ask me a question and it's for a purpose of a podcast yeah i gotta make sure i actually like and I'm or at least try try but i mean like whatever so that, yeah because like if a person is like listening they're like oh yeah yeah i want the answer and then the conversation meanders and then you don't and answer then they're like, like what the fuck yeah i like, oh, <laughs> the answer um well i mean i can always rewind it and listen but it doesn't really matter yeah, doesn't that matter. much can, and like realistically we're gonna get through it's like how, points, it's like yeah, yeah and yeah i feel like and, I and it's like with me launching the podcast it's like how many people are gonna listen to like this first, first few, few episodes, episodes yeah. i mean they'll be up for a long time like but realistically most people will not go back like too far like so it's fine no it doesn't not, have to be perfect not likely it's and more yeah. important to get it done and get it out there than to try to make it perfect and I'm certainly a bit better prepared this time yeah. and it's flowing better than last time. So yeah, like, no, we're definitely on the right track. Um, so just to, we'll try to see if, if something clicks in your head to remember what we were just talking about. Like we're talking about kind of like the, 
like you, you were talking about that there is a mental health epidemic going on right now, and then you were talking about your professor's oh, right. research. I, t- I started talking about the overprescription, of overprescription of antidepressants, and then, and then the, the difference oh, between right. how was, you would treat them. And I was talking about right the actual efficacy of depressive treat. Okay, right. That's the important point that I wanted to come back to was how effective antidepressants actually are and what it says about like how we should approach treating. Yes, I think I'm... uh, Yes, okay, so the last thing I said here was like... We're just talking about the The approach will be different depending on... So so if you are thinking about like, sure, there is neurochemical changes in the brain, but it could be seen in a very trivial way as just like, yeah, of course there's a change in the brain of the person is behaving differently because something is mediating that change. Uh, But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the way to fix it. And that goes back to what I alluded to earlier, that antidepressants are actually not that efficacious. Even when the first trials were being conducted, the effectiveness of them, like, it helped 60% of people. Which is like good. Which, it helps a lot of people. Compared to 30% of people that recovered from placebo. So really, antidepressants helped only another 30% on top of the placebo effect. Yeah, and can you explain what the placebo effect is? So placebo effect is-, effect is when you think something is working, you can have a benefit. Uh Without, even if you're not getting even any, actual any actual treatment. Real so treatment, in, in real the drug. clinical trials, they would give um, like half the people would receive a placebo pill, which was just like, like a sugar, sugar pill, pill. Yeah. and half of the people would receive the real medicine, and a person wouldn't know which one they got. Yeah. So the people who got the placebo pill, thirty percent of those people uh, had um, and responded to treatment, which responds to treatment is not even like full recovery. They had like catalysts. But it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's good. Yeah. They it's had a, at least, a, a, I, think a fi- I think they defined it as at least a 50% improvement in symptoms, which I'm sure to anyone struggling from depression, they'll happy, like happily take that too. Yeah, which is fascinating because it, like we still don't, doctors still don't understand or scientists still don't understand the real mechanisms underlying how the placebo effect actually works. Yeah. And so there's this whole aspect of like just us believing that we're getting the drug even though we're getting a sugar pill and they've done it with so many other types of treatments and that's how that's how like studies are done is you have like these double blind because studies it's so powerful yeah the placebo because the placebo, so placebo effect is so powerful that it's like, like it, yeah it's just like our beliefs about whether we're actually being treated or not make our bodies more able to actually heal themselves and are it's it's mind-boggling that that's that's even a thing um i've actually heard of an explanation to kind of because they don't really understand why the actual antidepressant and antipsychotic drugs work for some people and don't work for others because it's like it's like the the chemical is just like flooding the brain, right? Like it's not going to any sort of particular area of the brain. And I've heard it uh, like an analogy being like if you had a car that needed an oil change and basically instead of 
going and taking the old oil out and putting new oil in and changing the oil filter like you do for an oil change. It's like a very targeted area. You need to go do something. The way that antidepressants sort of work is like almost like if you just open the hood and dumped oil all over the engine and hope some of it went in somewhere it was supposed to. And that's almost kind of like how antidepressants right now work sort of because it's like you're just flooding the brain with these chemicals that it's helping people. So they're they're very useful and we need them for people to be able to get get treatment and get help. But that it's just like this crude kind of way of doing things right now but there's a lot of maybe you know some of the stuff that's being done i don't personally to speak to it right now but there's a lot of research being done on like much more targeted um drug treatments and stuff like that is that correct well i don't know about drug treatments because they were limited to systemic administration which goes everywhere but there is like the brain stimulation where like they implant an electrode and that's a lot more targeted because then they put it in a very specific brain region and something like transcranial magnetic stimulation which they don't implant anything but they use a magnet like placed over the surface of the skull and that's also a lot more targeted in which brain regions they stimulate Although the results of those studies um, are not as earth-shattering as had been hoped initially. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't quite recall what what it was that I read about yeah, some not, of these more targeted drug yeah, approaches. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. Like maybe they came up with something, but I. I'll try to. I'll try to look it up. Yeah. And if I find some, I'm usually pretty good at finding. Something yeah, if it's like something I that I read about before. So yeah. I'll try to look it up and I'll I'll put something in the show notes if I find something about it. Yeah, that would be interesting because I don't know about that. But um, but yeah, so you're talking about just like the overall efficacy. Yes. Of- so basically what those the initial clinical trial shows like 30 percent of people respond to placebo, which is uh, incredible. And depression has one of the highest placebo response rates compared to like anything in medicine, actually. Yeah, like the placebo for depression which works better than to, the placebo for cancer, which <laughs> like goes to show just like how much of like at least depression can be modulated through other means that are not medication. Yeah. And those are people who are not even receiving any alternative treatment. Like, they're not... Like, it's, yeah, it's not in combination with yeah, psychotherapy. No, they just they come up for follow-up appointments, but they're just, like, symptom checkups. They're not, like, they're not doing therapy with people. And so them just thinking that... And they know that they could even be receiving a sugar pill. So it's like quite incredible but the so the group that was receiving the actual antidepressant 60 percent recovered but we know that like 30 percent of that is placebo so really antidepressants are helping only another 30 percent so actually the magnitude of effect of antidepressants is just as strong as placebo right because placebo helps 30 percent of people and then antidepressants helps 30 percent of people but Another 30%, an additional 30%, but yeah, but in terms of its strength, it's like 30% and 30%. Um, But uh, 
that was the initial studies, but more recent studies are showing that like even less people actually are responding to antidepressant treatment, like 50%. And that's including those portion of the placebo effect. And somewhat also seems that the placebo effect is increasing in size in clinical trials in general. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, quite... Uh, that's quite an interesting area all of its own. But... Uh, then there's the added problem that there's a really large recurrence rate even during antidepressant maintenance treatment. So you have these 60% of people, including the placebo, but whatever, let's say just 60 people, they've responded to antidepressants. Say they continue taking antidepressants as maintenance treatment to help prevent recurrence. Over a two-year period... 50% of those people will have depression again right. while still taking the antidepressant. And probably even well, at, e- at some point well, in that two years, probably upping well, the no, then, amount like, too, I mean, or is that not part of that You wouldn't type up of study. it unless your like, symptoms wouldn't... You would up not, it for, not for study purposes, but in any normal circumstance. Well, in normal circumstance, you wouldn't up your dose if you, your symptoms weren't getting worse. If anything, you'd reduce your dose. Right, but you were just talking about I'm saying that, that the, the depression comes like, back, and then you yeah, need it to, comes uh, back. Yeah, so but it comes back not like it comes back, not after the dose has been upped. It comes yeah, back, yeah, yeah. and then you up the dose. To, yeah, I don't, like, I don't know where the confusion came there. Yeah, I, I was on the same page as you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the way you said it, you're like it made it sound like they're upping their dose during maintenance treatment, and even in spite of upping the dose, I they think get it was a recurrence. Confusing because. This is like during a study. So during the study, they would stay on the same dose, and then after a two-year period, this is all. Yeah, so this is based. Also, I think it might also be based on just general, also community follow-up. Not like not even like um, not necessarily directly part of the study. Yeah, not directly. Like people are like just like following up people who just. They've recovered and they've continued their antidepressants to see how many of those people have a recurrence. Like, because now you're not, like, trying to establish efficacy of medication, so, like, placebo effect is, like, not the issue. You're trying to see how many people, like, relapse even while still taking the medication. Yeah. Uh, And so 50% of people have a recurrence. So... That really, so, you know, from the initial 60 people, percent of people that responded, you're like, now I've lost half the people. Like, they've now relapsed. Yeah, and then what do you do? Yeah, so, like, you up the dose, you try another antidepressant, you try a combination, you go to a second line of antidepressant treatments, then a third line of antidepressant treatments, there's a hierarchy of them and the order in which they're prescribed, you know. But, like, this goes to show that taking an approach of trying to treat a chemical imbalance is really not effective. It's not terribly effective to begin with, and it certainly doesn't fix any core issues, because if it had fixed a core issue, the person would not have recurrence. Yeah. If a person has recurrences while still taking the treatment, it means that it's only like covering up for symptoms. It's like putting on a Band-Aid, but it's like not fixing anything. Yeah, the underlying causes of it have still not been addressed. Yes. So, in a way, like, the only 
place where antidepressants are really useful are for people with severe depression. But people with mild to moderate depression, studies have shown that antidepressants actually fail to separate from placebo. So if you, um, like, uh, separate the people by depression severity and in the clinical trials and you compare the efficacy of the pre- of the antidepressant but like depending on how severe then for mild and moderate depression you basically don't have a difference between the placebo group and the antidepressants right right like it only really, really is helping the people, people that are severely, that are severely depressed. depressed so people and then there's still and like what's the percentage of that that is actually helping though because there's still a significant percent of the people that it doesn't help at all are the people who are significantly depressed or severely depressed as yes, well, right? Yes, But at the very least, it's true. And, but most people fall into the mild to moderate depressed category. And what the studies show is that for mild to moderate depression, there's really no reason to ever give an antidepressant. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a placebo level. It's like, why would you give it ever in the first place? If when it's you could have a sugar pill that does the same, same thing. Same thing. Yeah, like clinical trials are sure, like maybe like the upper end of the moderate range, like is, but like definitely the mild to like mid-moderate, there's zero reason to prescribe an antidepressant because it's been shown in clinical trials to perform no better than placebo. So why are you making people take a pill then it's not like it's like oh it's harmless and if it's giving them a placebo effect why not because it's associated with unwanted side effects like serotonin which is like the main uh chemical that these medications act on it's one of the more ancient and um, neurotransmitter systems it has something like 15 16 receptors they're like keep discovering new receptor subtypes still to this day it's one of the most complicated systems nature has been working in a recycling fashion and a repurposing and like and as a chemical evolved and a receptor evolved and then like a little change evolved and now it's like serving a different function and the same chemical is acting on a different receptor in a different part of the brain but it's like mediating a whole bunch of other effects that are unrelated and so like right i'm one of the so that's where the side effects typically come come from from, because it's acting on so many different areas of the brain and different receptors yes of the same chemical Hmm. uh so when one of the most like one of the most common and unwanted like side effects is actually sexual dysfunction, <laughs> and as you can imagine, that in itself causes depression. So yeah, that certainly <laughs> wouldn't help. Yeah, so you have like a person who's depressed to give them an antidepressant to fix their depression, which is giving them sexual dysfunction, which gives them depression again like, for a for different this reason. reason. <laughs> and they probably didn't need that antidepressant to begin with because if they're mild to moderately depressed, the antidepressant don't do anything beyond the placebo effect and right. that's not to take away from the usefulness of the of antidepressants for certain people and from the life-saving effects that it can have for those because the severely depressed people are the ones that are suicidal and like yeah. they're the ones that actually do benefit from antidepressants and not to take away from that but you know you should not just like just because it's useful for some people with depression doesn't mean you should just prescribe it left right and center to anyone that complains of like a couple of mild depressive symptoms and they came into their family doctor yeah yeah and i've i've experienced that myself um when i've been going through 
difficult times in my life because I've, I've gone to therapy a lot of times and I've had, I've had like a, I've had a, a, I don't know if she was a, just like a counselor, like a social worker, if she was a, like a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but the first woman I ever went and spoke to in therapy when I was 17, she, she put me on antidepressants, but cause I was, I was pretty severely depressed at that point, but I, I only took them for two weeks and I know it takes about a month for them to get into your system and for you to actually feel any of the effects of them. But I, I pretty sure I already knew about the placebo effect a little bit back then already. And I didn't want to take a pill because of the side effects and things like that. I've always kind of been against taking pharmaceutical drugs because of that reason. Um, but I also knew that like, I was smoking a bunch of weed. I wasn't doing, you know, like I wasn't working out. I had family issues. Like I knew that there were environmental and behavioral issues behind why I was feeling bad and that taking a magic pill was not going to help solve any of those problems. So I knew like talking about those issues made me feel better, but that I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to take the, the drugs and and then a few years later when I kind of was going through a rough time again I was living up in Barrie for uh for school and I I had a, a psychiatrist then kind of the same thing he he gave me the drugs but I took them for like a week and then I was like no like this isn't what I need it's not you know I've got to I've got to make better choices in my life to be healthier and happier and things like that and I had a, I had a doctor at one point, I just went to a walk-in clinic cause I didn't have a family doctor and I told him, you know, like I wasn't feeling very good. I was working out and stuff like that at this point, but just kind of feeling a little, a little blah sort of about life in general and still family related issues and relationship issues, but he basically told me kind of what you're saying because it's mild to moderate. He's like, is it affecting your ability to maintain relationships and like a job in your life? I'm like, well, no, not really. Like I had a girlfriend at the time and I had pretty, pretty big group of close friends and had like a decent job and stuff like that. So he was like, then I'm not going to give you like antidepressants or any, any medications. Cause he's like, just, Make sure you're eating right and spending time with friends, doing things you enjoy doing, watch movies, get out in nature, exercise, like do those things that everyone needs to do to feel happy. Because if you don't do those things and you're going to, you know, be more likely to struggle in some areas of your life. But unless it's like really affecting certain areas of your life, then don't take antidepressants because for a lot of people, that's like a life sentence. Like you start taking them and you basically need to take them forever, which is like part that was in my early twenties. And there's been times since then when I've been really dealing with some tough times and I've flip flopped for years when I've gone through tough times thinking like, fuck, like maybe it is because my, my family history, my mom's side of the family has bipolar. There's a whole bunch of stories about the kind of craziness I've seen with some people on that side of my family and just how, how hard they've struggled that I've wondered, maybe it is a, a 
chemical imbalance in my brain or it's it's genetic it's hereditary it's biological and maybe the reason that I struggle so much is because I should be on antidepressants but I still never have like I've still never gone on them because largely because of like that doctor that said you know like you should be doing all of these other things that matter for regulating your mood and and having having healthy kind of strong coping mechanisms for dealing with you know the shit that life throws at you that everybody deals with and I, like I knew at any given point when I've been at my lowest kind of points in my life there's always been like a significant factor of me not doing those things that I need to do right and it's because of just stress and work and relationships you know you get burnt out and things get you down and it's hard to it's hard to make the healthy choices and like go to the gym and eat right instead of doing the easy things like just hanging out with friends and drinking and smoking weed and eating junk that you know is not good for you and it they become just like kind of a sequence of unhealthy coping mechanisms for for dealing with stress and they just kind of compound onto each other. And that's been my experience. And I think probably for a large majority of people that are in the mild to moderate uh, category of dealing with things like depression and anxiety, it's very much to do with the choices that they're making in their life rather than just like, you know, a, a genetic hereditary thing causing a chemical imbalance in their brain yes and even like so there is definitely some genetic predisposition but even for the people that have a family history it's not like having it's a predisposition it's not like having it's not a predetermination yeah it's not like having the gene for brown eyes that you're gonna have brown eyes like because it's a dominant gene and even if you have only one copy you're gonna have brown eyes uh, guaranteed <laughs> and then like um or if you have two copies of b- the blue eye gene you're guaranteed to have blue eyes like this is a predisposition and the other component is the environment so even if you have the predisposition you still have the ability to change the way it's expressed and manifested and sure you like may have not chosen the environment you grew up in, but we are lucky enough to live in a society where we have quite a lot of freedom to make active choices to change our circumstances and take charge of our life. And it doesn't even have to be in like a very major way of like quitting your job and necessarily finding another job or like, which could very well be an important step for some people, but it could even be just changing your attitudes towards things and like taking ownership over your emotions and like deciding what kind of things you are going to take personally or not going to take personally, like realize that like... Which is easier said than done for most of us, but it's still possible. Sure, it's possible. And it's been for me like a journey of a few years of like actively trying to make those changes inspired by learning about cognitive behavior therapy when I was studying psychology in my undergrad. And I basically started applying it to myself in everyday life. It's basically a method of identifying automatic negative thoughts that influence 
like and undermine you so like fear of like success or something like you think you're like you're not good enough so you don't try and like you don't push yourself outside of the comfort zone because you're afraid of the consequences of it and so it's like identifying those kind of things that hold you back or like thinking that oh that friend doesn't like me because they didn't message me back but like most of the time people don't message you back just because they're so caught up in the million things that they have going on in their lives and it's nothing personal so learning to training yourself rigorously to think differently and it's a hard process it's but a skill though it's a skill it comes with practice yes and unfortunately we're not taught that skill like i think it should become part of like our education in like grade school i think kids should be like taught these coping mechanisms but as an adult you have a choice you have a choice to learn those things and to teach yourself those coping mechanisms and to practice them but it's hard work and i think that's why a lot of people like antidepressants and psychiatric medication and i'm going to speak specifically about depression because it's a different story for different disorders and but i I would say that anxiety falls under the same category for that matter as depression um that medication becomes a life sentence if you're not actually working to make changes. Because then you're just using a Band-Aid. But if you're not curing the wound underneath, you're just going to need to keep reapplying the Band-Aid over right. and over and over again. But it's, So it's not a life sentence out of necessity. It's a life sentence because you're not actively working to resolve the under, other underlying issues that are making you feel depressed in the first place. Mm-hmm. And which is, it's unfortunate that that's even a controversial statement insofar mm-hmm. as it is, because a lot of people who are on antidepressants for like depression and anxiety medication and stuff, we have the cultural and kind of the, the, the narrative behind the research that's gone on for the past few generations is that it's a lot more to do with the, the chemical imbalance and that people need to kind of stay on it forever. And so many people that I've seen talk about this kind of thing because some people get defensive and, and criticize people that say that type of thing that it's like it has a lot to do with taking responsibility over the areas of your life that are like the underlying reasons for the the mental kind of issues that you're dealing with in the first place because they've got this narrative that it's a chemical imbalance and you need this drug to be able to feel good and if you don't take it then you're going to relapse and you're going to go back to to what you were dealing with before but there's such little emphasis. I think it's getting better now, but there's been such little emphasis on the fact that all of these other areas of your life are essential to your overall well-being, right? Yes. So like one concept that I think a lot about that I learned in undergrad is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Which uh, most people know about. We kind of all learned about that in... Uh, yeah. elementary school or middle school yeah. maybe high school maybe high school I don't know um, I Not first heard of it when I was school. like studying in an undergrad <laughs> yeah, I don't um, but, oh really yeah okay. I, I mean I, I, I think I meant like 
public school or just like school when we were younger. I'm pretty sure I first heard about it when I was in high school. Yeah, no, I did not. Not, not like grade of, three. Okay, yeah, kids, now we're going to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes, and that just speaks to like, the, what? And the top need of that, <laughs> like, so obviously the like food, shelter, security, like those are the ones at the bottom of the pyramid, the most important ones where like you can't talk about your other needs if you're starving to death. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Or there's like a lion coming to eat you. Uh, but, um, or in modern days, if like you were living in a war torn zone, your like concern would be over safety before, like, oh, self actualization. I want to become an <laughs> artist. Like, yeah, but, but, but then you're probably also very stressed by your life circumstances. But uh, at the top of the needs, the very top, top of it, is self-actualization. But before that, um, there is uh, also social connection and love are like some of our uh, important needs. And so if those are not being met, a person will feel depressed and giving them medication that just artificially makes them (laughs) feel numb to the pain of feeling socially disconnected or feeling like they're not accomplishing what they want to be accomplishing in life you're just numbing them so that they feel okay to continue being stuck in the place where they are in life rather than encouraging them to grow which is challenging and it's hard and it puts you outside of the comfort zone and like I've always had the tendency to kind of like feel more depressed or withdrawn when like something didn't go quite right but then when I started doing this like personal growth thing and pushing myself to overcome those things so I'm not held back by my own self that's when I first started feeling anxiety because it was terrifying like it was scary to put myself out there but I understood that like if I stop because I'm afraid to feel this feeling of anxiety I'm just like continue to hold myself back and the solution isn't to numb myself so that I feel okay with that feeling because then I don't like not as motivated to grow yeah and that's one of the one of the main treatments for anxiety from not the drug perspective but the treatment side of you know you go and talk to your therapist but also they encourage you to expose yourself to the thing that you're afraid of because it's exposure therapy that the Mm -hmm. more you expose yourself to something the less the reaction kind of continues happening the more you expose yourself to it because you get used to it Mm -hmm. and you build new skills and you see that hey you did this scary thing that you went out yeah Yeah. like you went outside your comfort zone but you didn't fucking die. Exactly. <laughs> Which is what like our brain thinks is going to yeah. happen when we're like having like anxiety, especially about like trying new things and, you know, doing it in the face of like fear of judgment and being laughed at and criticized. And, and stuff. even if you think about, okay, okay. What if you do get laughed at? What if you embarrass yourself? What is really objectively so terrible about that? Yeah, you feel embarrassed in the moment and it sucks. Okay, but like, honestly, people have so much of their own shit to worry about in their everyday life. They're going to forget about it soon enough. No one is going to care that you said this like funny thing or like you just like you put yourself out there and it wasn't a huge success. They're going to move on with their lives. That moment will pass. But you've had a learning experience. And then the next time you can do better. Like, 
So yeah, like it. I I I fully agree, and I get that. It's like, who cares? Like, what's actually going to happen? Like, just deal with it and do the thing and get out of your comfort zone and get better. But I've I've heard a few different places come uh, that I've come across recently that it's like because we don't live in the wild anymore, right? We don't have any natural predators anymore. We very rarely have to deal with worrying about any sort of natural disaster or something like that. And we don't generally have these beliefs about the gods, you know, having wrath on us for whatever reason. So we have this like biological fight or flight mechanism that's been developed over millennia. And it's almost like in our world now, it's sort of useless like it's not needed almost like 99% of the time like you know if you cross a street and a car almost hits you yeah it kicks in but it's there's not many situations where we're ever actually in danger but we have this highly sensitive like mechanism in our brain that is there to protect us so it's like it's it's looking it's just always looking for threats and like what could possibly hurt us and because there aren't any of these other things that it was developed with. It just, it finds whatever it can. And so now the only thing that we really have to fear is each other, right? Like, so our fight or flight mechanism is just peaking all the time or it's just, you know, like an undercurrent in our life. And that's why we have all these social anxieties because the only thing we have to fear now is ourselves and each other. So, all of the fears that we have, essentially, it boils down to like things like fear of judgment or criticism or looking stupid or something like that. It boils down actually to the fear of rejection and the fear of rejection only like a couple hundred or thousand years ago, because we're such social creatures, if we did something that actually got us rejected by going outside of social norms, then we might actually get rejected and banished from our tribe or our our town or whatever, which actually may have led or likely would have led to us not being able to take care of ourselves and death. So it's like, it's like, Sure, to us, we recognize that they're just like these sort of silly social fears that we have and social anxieties and things like that. But to our brain, it can't tell the difference because it's not that part of our brain is not the conscious part of our brain. It's this much more ancient part. So it's like all of these social fears pushed far enough is about like rejection and about the fear of death, right? So it's like the because we're such social creatures and we built these systems of having social norms that we conform to as well, it's actually not just social and cultural. It's actually biologically hardwired into us as well, that if we go outside of social norms, it might lead to us being banished and eventually like dying because of it. So it's like, that's what's like actually pushed far enough. That's actually what's underlying those fears. So it's like, it's like they're not silly, but at the same time they are because we're not living in that world anymore. And just like you were talking about, it's still a matter of changing your your perspective on these things to see that that's what that fear actually is. But that's not likely to happen, in to the happen at all. Sense. 
And so you can still through practice and through things like exposure therapy, especially if you have anxiety problems, you eventually kind of become accustomed to that thing that you're trying or with practice, you just, you get better and you develop skills and and things. So it's a lot easier to deal with, but I just find that to be like a fascinating, um, a fascinating kind of concept. And one of the places that I heard that was, there's a, there's like an online learning community called mentor box that you can, they're not sponsoring this, so I'm not getting anything for this, but maybe one day, maybe one day. It, but it's like, it's like people at MentorBox, listen, yeah, yo, MentorBox, fucking help me out here, sponsor my podcast. But it's like, it's like seven bucks a month, and it's like a really cool online learning community where a lot of what they do is like they'll interview people, authors of books and stuff, and um, they'll they'll have the authors kind of give like a half hour breakdown of all the main concepts in their book so that you can kind of watch like a half hour video and get the meat and potatoes sort of of like the main things that you can learn from that and um yeah like one of the one of the founders of it has this video i I can't think of his name right now it's jonathan something but one of the founders has this video and it's all about fear and there's this really interesting there's this really interesting thing that he that he says at the end of it i can actually bring it up right now cuz yeah you can open that yeah i didn't want to like make sounds while you were no, talking no i know That's why i, I know but you got so excited on the side of chocolate you were willing to stop mid sentence well, for me to open it i was that was i <laughs> I was just going to stop talking so that you could open it. It wasn't because I got so excited. Uh, Where is this? I I think it's... Yeah, it's here. So yeah, open that and I'll I'll read this little part. Ooh, white chocolate. Vanilla flavored white chocolate. I've never tried it before, but... Hmm. <laughs> We're just gonna have a break here to eat some chocolate. <laughs> it's Lynn chocolate. Lynn, do you want to sponsor yeah. our podcast? <laughs> Yo, Lynn, help me out. <laughs> so we're trying this uh, vanilla, um, vanilla bean white chocolate from Madagascar vanilla. Oh, it's mm-hmm. delicious. And the other one is with uh, dark chocolate with strawberry pieces. Mm, so good. You should head to your <laughs> local store. <laughs> go go into any store and give them the code unapologetically human mm-hmm. and they'll give you 20% off any lint products. <laughs> Just kidding. Soon, soon. Because of this conversation, I'm going to approach Lynn <laughs> yeah. and be like, <laughs> even though this is, it's not like a food podcast, it has nothing to do with that. But, but hey, um, we'll like, hey, chocolate Lint. solve the pressure. Oh, there it is. That's the pitch. <laughs> it's the best chocolate for helping it with depression. your mood. <laughs> <laughs> It's about the little pleasures in life to make you enjoy life and feel good. Try Lynn's chocolate. (laughs) 
I'll just send them this part of the recording and <laughs> they'll be on the next episode as sponsors for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure they send us some samples to review. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> How else are we going to like talk about it if we don't get to eat it for free? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Oh yeah, what is this guy's name? I have it here too. Jonathan Kendall. That's it. Chocolate. So good. See, isn't your mood already better? <laughs> <laughs> it really is, yeah. I mean I see that smile. <laughs> it's true. It works. And fast. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> faster than antidepressants, which takes six weeks to kick in. <laughs> yeah, this takes like six seconds, <laughs> not six weeks. So, like, on the way to, so I go to this like shop called Fruits on Bloor. That's where I get my produce. Yeah. And on the way there, I was like, I stopped by Dalarma and another one. I'm looking for like some more like kitchen tools that can be used for my art. Is that what those were? No, those are for actual, like... <laughs> and that's been here for days. I've just been lazy to wash them. Um, but... And I walked into this, like, one random store. And um, as I was approaching the counter to pay for, like... I, I got this, like, spatula thing that I can use for swiping. I, it's literally, like, one of those things, like, I don't know, for cakes. Like, for, like, mm-hmm. little triangular things. Um, right. But... Uh, and then at the counter, I was like, they had, like, these Lindt's chocolate, they're, like, special, $2 a thing, which is, like, really good for a Lindt bar. And then, like, all these flavors. And I was, like, very skeptical. I even checked the expiry dates on all of them because I was like, are they just selling expired chocolate for that cheap? Yeah. And I, like, they were all good. And I was like, have they been damaged in, like, transport or something? But anyway, I still got four bars because I was just like, I want all these flavors. It's a decent price. I'm happy to see they're actually fine. <laughs> I hope their special is their permanent price and that's just their marketing strategy. Yeah. Oh, actually, I, like, stolen off a truck. <laughs> <laughs> stolen lint chocolate. Don't don't send that to Lind. Don't tip them off. <laughs> <laughs> I want my cheap chocolate supply. Lind, if you yeah, if you sponsor my podcast, I'll snitch on the people that robbed you. <laughs> <laughs> but only if you guarantee Sophia a lifetime supply of Lind. <laughs> or else she's not giving up the source. If she wants her cheap it was chocolate. So, it was Sophia. <laughs> I didn't steal it. <laughs> yeah. You robbed a, a chocolate truck? No, but I possibly bought it from someone who did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know how that, but I have like a whole selection of all these different flavors. Mm, legit. Me. Legit. Certainly marketing done right, I came to buy a spatula and walked away with four chocolate bars. They got you. All right. <clears throat> you want to do this? Mm-hmm. You Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was just talking about how there's that idea that, like, push far enough fear, all the social fears that we have is essentially based in our fear of rejection, 
which not that long ago would have probably met certain death. And I find that to be like a fascinating, um, a fascinating idea. And then we're also talking about just that you have to expose yourself to the things that you're afraid of and things like that. And so one of the founders of MentorBox, he had this talk all about fear where he ends it off saying that you can eventually start to see fear as kind of like showing you exactly what you need to do. So he says, eventually you'll not only realize, but know that fear is obsolete. In fact, you'll learn to love it. You'll see it as a guiding light and X marks the spot. Because here's the thing. If you want to accomplish anything great in your life, and I know you do, then you're going to have to relentlessly push your boundaries. You'll have to expand your comfort zone out way past where everyone else is comfortable, which means along the way, you're going to have to face your fears over and over again. Fear now as a stepping stone, as a series of lily pads. Fear now as your map and as your friend. And then he goes on to say, like, let's get serious. We all kind of owe it to ourselves and our family and our entire collective society to push past and get past our fears because we need each other. Like we need everybody right now to step up and each do their own part because there are these much wider spread, larger issues that are happening out in our society as well that we need to, um, we need to be focused on. And so maybe we can kind of, switch gears here a little bit and talk a little bit about that. Cause even when you were talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like obviously if you're living in a war torn country, then like something like antidepressants definitely aren't going to help the underlying causes that you're living in a war torn country. Like it's not going to make that stuff go away. And even for over here, it's like one of the main reasons that is, probably a large contributor to the mental health epidemic that we're seeing like we're not living in a war-torn country but we're certainly seeing about that stuff on the news all the time and we have like these growing political divides and we have all of these all of these things that are going on there's environmental destruction and climate change and species extinction i've i've heard on a couple occasions and read that the the rate of species extinction right now because of the same kind of things that are driving climate change and ocean acidification and stuff like that the the rate of extinction for plant and animal species right now is a thousand times faster than what we typically see in the geologic record which is fucking terrifying and and we know that we're not really doing a whole lot about these like larger issues that are happening right it's like there's so many things going on and we're constantly being bombarded with all of this stuff too so I know for me a lot of that stuff really affects my mental health because it kind of makes you feel like the world is falling apart and there's like, there's nothing we can do except watch. It's like that idea of like watching a, like a, a train wreck right before it happens. It's like it happens in slow motion or something. 
So I, I know you mentioned before, as far as the like very political side of things, there's not a lot that you kind of have to add to that conversation or necessarily want to add to that conversation. But we could have a little bit of a discussion maybe about like what are the underlying reasons for all of these issues and I just it's a kind of like you don't necessarily and I don't know what I would say well you don't need it necessarily useful out of substance and not me talking out of my ass because I also don't follow these issues because what what about the, the the mental health ramifications of dealing with this shit I still think those are like it's just too specific outside I, I think and I also think that the mental health like unless you are the person living in that war torn country and you're actually dealing with that devastation like for the average person living in North America just reading on the news like I don't think that's a cause of mental health problems I think if anything a person might use that to blame their mental health problems on that but like ultimately what really affects people is their everyday things and if a person is struggling with mental health problems i would say that they still have like something very concrete and specific and very personal in their lives people don't get depressed about impersonal things really well you can be saddened you can be saddened and worried about it but there's a difference between like being saddened and worried about a larger issue versus like feeling depressed day to day in your life and feeling anxious. You're not anxious because there's war in Syria. You're anxious because of all the personal things you've talked about. If all those personal things would have been resolved, you would be worried about that. You would might feel as a fellow human being a sense of responsibility to try to make the world a better place, but you wouldn't feel personally anxious and depressed. In your yeah. current life circumstance. That's why I think like I get that larger mean. context isn't relevant to resolving mental health issues here in Canada for the and for people there. The, the like the conversation isn't about mental health. It should be about how do you resolve a war conflict, which. Like, do you get what I'm trying oh, to yeah, say? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, say no, no. That's why, I, like, I don't think... Like, I fully understand what you're saying, and I agree, and... But, like, do people actually think that that well, is the cause of mental health? You think that. I, for, like, for this, you, this is part of my experience, but what you're saying as well is actually very um, kind of correct for my own experience as well, because when it really comes down to it, it's more the fact that we have access to this information so much that it's very hard not to look at. It's the same. You can go back to that slow motion train wreck analogy. It's very hard to look away, right? That's kind of just a very human thing. And because we have through the internet, we have access to kind of do that over time, which is the way that the mainstream media news works as well. We're just constantly bombarded with bad news because we pay more attention to that. And there's that underlying kind of biological evolutionary reason that we pay attention to negative things more than we pay attention to positive things. And we remember negative things, our negativity bias, more than we remember positive things because they 
if it's something that was a personal experience to us, they cut deeper, they hurt more, we remember them more, and we pay more attention to the things that, in theory, could potentially negatively affect our life, even if it seems like it's, like, somewhere down the road, or we just, like, we pay attention to this, like, negative stuff because in our brain it's like we're trying to think of how it could affect us and how to protect ourselves from it actually having any sort of negative effect. So something that I did, especially in my early 20s, like when um, one of the times when I had a, a bit of a breakdown in my life and difficulty dealing with my stress was I was in school up in Barrie in 2008 when the financial collapse happened and I, I was in school for graphic design. I got much, much more interested in what was happening with the financial collapse because I saw all these, all these news outlets basically screaming Armageddon, like the world was ending and they were all using the same talking points. And it just like, it blew my mind. Like it shook my world so much that it changed the course of, of my life. And I got so much more interested in like politics and social issues because I was like, what the fuck is going on? Seriously, like, isn't it a whole bunch of people's jobs specifically to make sure that this shit doesn't happen? And, you know, fast forward, it's like nobody got in trouble for it. So like, I, I, it kind of put me on this journey of looking into what was actually going on in the world? Like, how did we allow people, how did we have systems set up in such a way that people were able to to behave in such a way that led to the collapse of the global economy where a lot of people, like, their lives were ruined from that. They, probably a lot of people killed themselves because of, of that. I don't know that that's true. I like that. I don't have a, a stat on that or anything, but people's lives were ruined. They lost their houses. They lost their life savings. And a lot of these bankers made, you know, millions, billions of dollars. No one got in trouble for tanking the world economy basically. Right. Um, but I got much more interested in politics and social issues and I really couldn't focus on school and there, there's, there's an addictive quality to that as well, right? Because you get that, that like physiological response from taking a look at this information all the time and thinking that it's somehow going to give you the knowledge or prep, like prepare you for like what might happen with what's going on and things like that. Cause it, it got me into like a lot of, that's when I got into a lot of conspiracy stuff as well, which is like really kind of addictive. There's a whole egotistical thing to that, that like, you start feeling special cause you, you think you're in the, the know. know, you're in the know yeah. and everybody else is a stupid asshole. They're sheeple and you're, you're a, you're a warrior for truth and you're trying to wake everybody up yeah. and, and all, all this stuff. And I, I saw like the, the subculture of that to a large degree and I, I only looked at that information for like, like a lot for a few months. And it was after like looking at almost nothing, but like kind of 
really negative conspiratorial information about like who's in power in the world and what they're doing and all this type of stuff, like Illuminati type shit. I got like really scared and really kind of depressed because of that. And that's obviously not necessarily because of what's happening in the world. That is more because of like my own actions, like you were saying of like what I'm doing on a day to day basis, not, you know, hanging out with friends and going to the gym and stuff like that, like good, healthy things as much as I should and being out in nature, but just like being on my computer, reading about how fucked up the world is all the time. That certainly affects your mental health. And it's not necessarily what's actually happening out in the world. It's what you're doing and the mental headspace that you're in or like, well, that was me, like the mental headspace that I was in, because of taking in all this negative information. Yes, which I actually think we're exposed <clears throat> too much information, especially with smartphones, and it's good to limit that for our mental health. Oh, for sure. Like, unless you're going to make yourself, like, active in working on a certain issue, I don't see the point of, like following too much news like it's good to know the general things that are happening but like it's quite pointless to track every development in like some issue unless because you're not gonna unless you're gonna be involved in doing something about it like what good is it for you to know all those details for sure and i agree going back to some of the the wider issues like I kind of got out of that conspiracy culture type stuff right away because I saw the type of people that were in there and it's like they look like they've been like doing this for years. Some of them older people that like look like they've been like these like truthers for like decades and Did it's they like wear aluminum hats. <laughs> probably some of them. But yeah, like you could see that like they're not actually doing anything for actually trying to help solve any of these issues. And I felt like very viscerally that I was like, whoa, like I feel like shit because I'm taking in all of this type of information and I need to stop it. And it's actually, it had a lasting imprint on me where for many years I still was kind of in that headspace, not, not all the time and certainly not as much, but periodically that type of thinking would kind of come back because I, I, read and watched so much conspiracy stuff for like a few months that whatever that time frame of looking at that information wired that knowledge into my brain sort of thing that it would peak up and kind of spike throughout my life since then sort of and it's gone it's gone down and down and down over the years since I've moved further and further away from that but I still kind of get that feeling sort of sometimes where because it's like it, it gets very attached to your fight or flight mechanism because it's like it's all this information about who's controlling and destroying the world basically um that's a little bit of a tangent more specifically into the conspiracy stuff than I was meaning to get into though. But to the point though, is that it's like, as far as all of the information that we have access to and that we're constantly being bombarded with 
about all of these like problems in the world, like you were saying, it's a good example that it's like not many people over here, especially like even people that are dealing with depression or anxiety or any sort of mental health issue are experiencing that because of knowing that, you know, there's a war in Syria or something like that, because that's, it's, no one really worries about stuff until it actually is going to become an issue yeah, that unless affects you, have family you, there that affects you there, in your then, life. Yeah. Then but it's like the, the one thing that I do think does affect us is that like climate change, you know, some people are still arguing against the fact that there's a 97% consensus among scientists who are experts in the fields that study that sort of thing. But climate change is this existential threat to our species. And, you know, we're, we're living in a world where humans have so much control and power over what we're capable of, of doing to the planet and the planet's environment that like, Scientists have declared that we're now living in a new geologic era called the Anthropocene. It's like the era of like the human because of how much power that we have. And because if we if you know, if climate change doesn't doesn't kill us in the next maybe one or two hundred years, if we stay on the track that we're on now, which is one of the things that is kind of talked about then humans in the future will see in the geologic record the effects of our time right now. That's why it's being like called the Anthropocene. But it's like we know that with business and government and how we live our lives generally, we're still kind of doing business as usual and we're not actually making changes or addressing the issues like climate change nearly as fast as we need to in order to avoid catastrophic consequences because of it where the level that we're already like almost guaranteed to hit unless we come up with some really really amazing and rapid technologies or ways to reverse some of the some of the CO2 in the atmosphere and the effects of climate change that we're, it's like, we're going to for sure see, uh, like a rise in global average temperatures above the 2% threshold, which the world governments at like the climate accords and stuff, you know, where they actually came to an agreement at the Paris climate accords that we have to stay below two degrees which doesn't sound like much, but you can look into more info for a bit more of a detailed explanation of what that means that I can't really explain right now. But at it's like at two degrees, it's a it's an absolute like catastrophe. The extreme weather events that are going to happen and how hot it's going to get, and like the Paris Accords, they they like agreed that we have to stay below one point five degrees. But it it's like it wasn't legally binding and most of the countries around the world 
are not doing the things that they kind of said they would or that we need to in order to stay under those limits that we've set. So it's like we're looking at this like existential crisis in our future that's threatening the very survival of our species and we're not doing anything about it really. So like for me, that type of thing has a lot more bearing and weight to it than say like the war in Syria because it's like we could potentially if we don't address that our species could be extinct in a hundred years but that's our species in a hundred years you're not gonna be alive yeah so I would challenge to ask you if you actually think that's yet another issue of concern and worry versus a cause of actual like depression and mental health problem i don't think necessarily on its own because i think like you're saying like it definitely still is other factors like again just like taking in too much negative news of that type in general and not doing other healthy behaviors in your life that you need to be doing like eating right and spending time with friends and family and in nature and getting proper exercise and stuff like that. Yeah, because I just, I'm just thinking, like, say you did a survey of people who are depressed and you ask them what's making you depressed. I I think the at least first 10 reasons would be something personal before they reach, like, anything, oh, sure. like, more like that. And if all those things are in check, I would say a person wouldn't be depressed about climate change. They would might be worried and motivated to become an activist. Well, yeah, that's like a, the future. Educate. Depression is usually stuff from the past that yeah, like, you like, are I, sad I, about I or you regret. I just think it's like personal, deeply personal things probably that have to do with something from the Maslow hierarchy of needs not being met in a very like direct, immediate way, not like... Oh, in a hundred years, our species might be extinct when I'm no longer alive. My children might be affected. That will be like, that will fucking suck. But like, you know, it's not like, yeah. that's like, if you like, and even like before you got to this topic, even like in your intro, the things that you've listed that are like most distressing to you are all deeply personal issues from like your childhood from like you not accomplishing the things those and those are the real issues that i think make those are the types of issues that make people depressed i think and have mental health problems those other things i think make people more generally worried yeah but if they didn't have any underlying personal kind of like issues wouldn't that i don't like I don't think that would be like, I just, I don't think that's an explanation for the mental health crisis. I would look more at our, like, I guess if I, like, I would look more at like our social structure, our like lack of community, for example, like those kinds of like. So before you get too far into that, that's actually, like, I agree with you. I actually agree with everything you're saying. And it, it is. I'm probably like I and said, I guess, I'm and that's kind of like why I there. didn't want to talk about the political stuff. I guess because like as a side, I think like, I actually don't think that's like a major like like I'm not saying it doesn't contribute to someone's mental health issues, but I just think it's a very minor thing and doesn't account for the crisis that we're for sure observing. 
for sure. Because and by still by any objective measure, we're still doing like way better socially and globally than ever in history, apart yeah, from the looming problem. It's the most of like, peaceful and prosperous yeah, time that's so, ever so, existed. Yeah, like, there's so, the least war right now than there's been yeah, in the last... Yeah, and the least, like, like, immediate survival 50 concerns. 50 years or, like, all of history, basically. So, so yeah, like, I... I, I don't totally think anyone who's, like, well-adjusted is going to get depressed because they're finding out about climate change. They might get angered, worried, like... Well, a like big a part of it, But, like, I don't think anyone is going to fall into, like, this, like, actual, like personal anxiety and depression like like i don't think so so there's a couple things like i agree with what you're saying and i actually really like kind of it doesn't sound like new information to me but almost like i haven't heard this in a while or something because i kind of have that's been one of my stories sort of for me because i actually like really care about this stuff and i've done all this research into it over the years and stuff like that. But most people haven't from, from what I can see. And most people don't really care. They don't really even think about it. So that's obviously not the case. Just like you're saying, like, and if you were to pull a few thousand people, that would be a very, very small percentage of people that would even probably list that as, as like their 20th as, reason as any a reason at all, oh, yeah. let alone, one of the top reasons and specifically probably not the top reason at all. And you're right. And I would say even and for you as someone w- who cares, it, that would probably, it, well, it like also, if you're like very like, well, no, I wouldn't even no, I wouldn't say that that's the main thing either. And it is everything you're saying that it's, it's the other reasons. And it's because I've already, I've been dealing with these issues. I've been dealing with fucking, depression and anxiety my whole life that started when I was a kid and there are certain things that have happened in my my childhood adolescence and my early adulthood that have made me have been like large contributing factors to me dealing with these mental health struggles my whole life and if it weren't for the fact that I already was dealing with mental health struggles generally and at times in my life where like when I first got into politics and social issues and stuff like that and I got into this conspiracy culture, that was kind of like um I can't think of the right word. That was kind of like triggered by the fact that I I wasn't sure if like being in school for graphic design was what I wanted to do. And then the global financial collapse happened and I got way more interested in politics and social issues. And then I got into this really negative conspiracy culture type of shit. And that probably wouldn't have happened if I wasn't already dealing with some mental health struggles. And they were amplified by the fact that I just dropped out of college. Could have also been a distraction. And a thing to, like, misplace, like, the, like, attention. Like, in what way? Like. From. Like, as a distraction from, like, the other things that you were struggling with at the time in your life. Yeah, for sure. Kind of like how, like, addiction is usually, uh, like, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, it's a. It's an unhealthy, it's a, but it's like it provides like bad coping mechanism. Yeah, for distraction, dealing with stress, dealing with and, stress it, and yeah. the other way. It numbs you and it. 
yeah. it distracts you from having to deal with the real issues that are going on in your yeah, life. Yeah, and gives you like another thing to focus on. Yeah. It's like very immersive. Yeah. I so yeah, I totally agree with you. Um I'm just trying to think. So I guess okay. There's like one thing that I wanted like to talk about. So one thing that like I guess kind of like which is like my message, if you will, if I wanted to, like, have a message from, like, I guess my experience with, like, my education and my personal experience towards, like, treatment and overcoming mental illness, which you don't have to include this, but, like, I guess my message would be, like, something about, like, like, we need to uh, take ownership over our lives and responsibility for our lives, um... So, like, one of the underlying causes of depression, not causes, but, like, one of the learned helplessness is, like, a major concept in depression. So when people feel like their actions don't lead to consequences and they can't do anything about their situation, that's when they feel depressed. And I think in many ways, like, we haven't been taught to effectively deal with our situations and where we think there's nothing we can do about a situation, really we can. It's just not an easy solution. And it will take a lot of effort, a lot, a lot, a lot of effort and a lot of discomfort. And, like, I also think we, in a way, don't want to expend effort. And maybe there is, like, an evolutionary basis to that. Yeah. And so it's, like, it becomes a balance of, like, oh, like... I'm depressed but comfortable versus I can overcome my depression but be very uncomfortable in the process. So it's like you're like it's it's like it's like this like catch 22. Yeah, so it's like you're on the one hand you are depressed and you don't like it, but you are comfortable. Yeah, cuz it's familiar. It's familiar and and in a way, you like the the learned helplessness. It's like because it's familiar and comfortable, you almost like I feel like uh, we prefer. And it. this is gonna be controversial to say, but people prefer to stay. Yeah, choose no. to be depressed because it's more like and blame it on something else and not take ownership over their feelings and not take ownership over the things that they can do personally themselves. To and it doesn't even have to do with like. You don't even have to necessarily make big changes to your life, just to your own attitude and how you process information and retrain your thinking patterns, which is really hard work. Um, well, and it's done through small steps. Small steps over so time. Over time, though, right? yes. And so we don't have enough of that motivation. Certainly, like when a person comes to a doctor and complains of depression, the doctor doesn't say, "Well, maybe you should focus on personal growth." Yeah. Uh. <laughs> no, but like it shouldn't even be that controversial because like that's something that I've read about recently that like people hang on to their trauma because like like they they're so attached to their trauma and their depression or whatever their way of thinking that's leading to their depression and anxiety and stuff like that. Like people get so attached to it and I can... I can say like, I agree with what you're saying because there's been a lot of times in my life when I look back now that I've done a lot of work to make changes in my life, that there was a lot of behaviors of not taking responsibility for my behaviors that were leading to 
my depression and my anxiety and stuff like that. And people tend to, a lot of times when they're dealing with this type of thing, latch on to like their, their trauma or their mental illness because they've attached having that so intimately to like their identity and their idea of like who they are and what their normal way of living life and I feel is like that it becomes an excuse that it's yeah that it they is can an use excuse not to do things yeah yeah because then you 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 play the victim you don't have to take responsibility and you can blame everyone else you can blame your parents you can blame your siblings you can blame your third grade teacher for something they did and you can blame the world for you dealing with what you're dealing with And because, like you said, because it's familiar, because we as humans, we all know that we fear the unknown. And it even though we know we hate it, we hate having depression or anxiety or self-worth issues and stuff. We still prefer it because it's familiar than taking the risks and doing the hard work in order to get out of our comfort zone to actually make changes. Also, when you start taking responsibility, like not every, not every action is going to lead to an immediate success, but then you no longer have someone else to blame because that was your deliberate action. So like, I think that's also a thing that like holds us back and a fear of responsibility. And like, because if you're like gonna like actually take active steps and you're going to be responsible, you can't, blame your third grade teacher anymore if you're trying to work on personal growth and you took a step and you took a misstep and it didn't lead you quite in the direction you wanted but like now that's on you and also wait, I want to look up a lyric of a, of a song that I think is like just captures this idea very beautifully and I mean, I would know all about sa- uh, sadness being as part of uh, my self-image <laughs> in my high school days. Yeah. <laughs> like where I was like all emo and I embraced it and it was like almost a competition. Oh, who's sadder? Who's sadder? Who's like, e- that's the more emo person <laughs> and you're doing it right. This is part of what I've been having a bit of a struggle with for like, even like the the message and the audience for the podcast too, because it's like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily like looking to get people who are like severely depressed and like having a really hard time at shit to be like the listeners of this show, because I'm not a clinician of any sort. I'm not an expert of any sort. I've done, I've dealt with the shit myself and I've dealt with doing a lot of the work necessary to, change my thoughts and my behaviors and stuff like that wait sorry but, I'm but just yeah. distracted at the moment because I'm trying to type no that's okay hold that thought because I, I wanna, did, like, no this doesn't require a response from you no but like I also want to process what you're saying to me <laughs> so you're not talking to a brick wall with me that's you what I do for yourself that's what you I have do that, you that's have what I do for right. myself with myself okay it is the found the song it's um from Smashing Pumpkins, the song Zero by Smashing Pumpkins. It has a line. Intoxicated with the madness, I'm in love with my sadness. Yeah. Like, that line, I'm in love with my sadness. Like, people love feeling sorry for themselves. Yeah. 
And that's why, like, they're not motivated to get out of depression. Like, because I will it say allows it. I will them, say it, yeah. It allows them to continue to not take responsibility for their thoughts and their actions and their life. Yeah, and they can blame somebody else. And I just really, like, that was just one thing that I wanted to say because that's, like, where, like, my thoughts are on, like, overcoming mental illness. And I just felt like... I wanted to say that message. No, for sure. <laughs> like, I agree with that. Oh, and I, like, well, I had a point. I wanted to say the note that I made when you were talking about the, like, um, how, like, from an evolutionary perspective, not evolutionary, but, like, from our, like, old social, like, history, like, social rejection was a very important thing because you can get ostracized and, like, you could literally die. Uh, and... I still think social like rejection is still a very important factor to be mindful of and just because we live in a society where like you won't immediately die but like you could still like feel very disconnected and not have like and that's kind of what happened to me in my high school days I had people that like I were friendly with me I wasn't bullied but it wasn't people I truly felt connected with so I did still feel very disconnected and the people that I felt connected with were back home in Israel so 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 and definitely like in Maslow's high care needs uh belongingness social belongingness is like in the middle of the pyramid it's not even one of the it's like right above whatever like food shelter and safety the next thing up is social belongingness so in like i guess thinking of like oh embarrassing yourself i mean i was thinking in the context of like oh like say you're an you're aspiring to become a musician and like you're having your first show with your band and like you come and you get choked up and like you the words didn't come out. That's embarrassing. But, like, in that context, like, your friends aren't going to reject you for, like, choking up on stage. But, like, you shouldn't go out and be doing, like, oh, like, now I'm all about, like, personal growth. I'm going to tell mean things to my friends because that's just what's on my mind. Like, that would be a detrimental kind of way of interacting. Like, you shouldn't be... And like you should still be a decent human being. So I think if you make a point of being a decent human being and the risks you take are more about like the pursuits you want to kind of do. And if they're like not harming anyone, then in that context, any like negative outcome you might feel isn't like a real like social negative consequence. But yeah, I think feeling disconnected socially is... That's probably one of the leading causes of our mental illness epidemic. And certainly addiction. There's like the whole social dislocation theory of addiction, which says that people become addicted to like, well, it started as a theory of drug addiction, but it could apply to anything when they don't have meaningful social connections that they are satisfied with, then they will people will connect with something else, like a substance or a video game to provide. Or, yeah, just like an object. object. You see some people in like those like weird like addiction shows on like TV. Uh, like to like connect with something to f- like feel, feel that need for Yeah, because it's so yeah. important for us. Because I thought that was like a very important point that you made about the like 
rejection and in the past that it could mean like death if you get ostracized but i like it's still a very important factor like not to be actually socially rejected even if it's not gonna kill you in the sense of like starving to death and not having shelter but you're still gonna it's like still gonna lot, uh, yeah, like affect most you. people are social. Most people, so like a very small percentage of people. Well, like, even people that aren't, it's like, well, why aren't they? It's probably due to some sort of like being social never got them anywhere. Like maybe they had a shitty family and yeah. But some people are actually like happy being asocial, and then I would argue why. Like, you know, you have like those people who are like loners. They go off to live in the woods by choice, and they're pursuing their hobby and they're quite satisfied with it they have like their little workshop why why force them to move out of it? if well, no, they're you not force distressed them to move out. if they're happy with like being asocial then i would say let the person be but most people are not happy most people aren't and yeah. i think even i would think even like a majority probably of people who even maybe not a majority but i would think that even a lot of people who are very comfortable being asocial or just being on their own all the time and and stuff like that that's also like a survival coping mechanism that they've had to develop and get comfortable with because that was like the only option like even me to a certain extent like i've always been very very social but like I've been off work for the last five months. I spend all day every day at home by myself almost. And I'm not all day every day. Like I come and hang out with friends. I go out and grab beers with people and stuff like that. And I see, I see people, but I spend like 95% of my time by myself working on things that I'm like working on that I care about. And I'm fine with it. And that's fine. Like, But I a would- big part of that is, is because it's been just like a coping mechanism that I've had to develop, which I think is part of the reason why I've, this is related to my procrastination and stuff because like I'm going to CAMH for like a tech addiction group right now because I spend so much time online and like my free time over the last, like the last 10 years almost, I, I've spent so much of my free time outside of work and socializing, researching all this different stuff that I'm interested in and even that has been a bit of a coping mechanism for not having really strong social bonds and stuff, right? Yes. and But I think, like, having strong social bonds and the percentage of time you spend socializing are, like, kind of, like, two separate parameters because you can spend... You could spend... 50% of your time socializing, your time socializing. socializing and feel completely empty and dissatisfied. Yeah. Or you can have a couple of very, like, genuine, strong connections. See those people, like, once a week but because you're pursuing other things, like, and you're motivated to pursue those other things. It's not a coping mechanism. It's, like, it's just that there's, like, at the top of the pyramid in Maslow's hierarchy is self-actualization, which could require a lot of solitary time. And so it's like, and that's the point. When you feel secure in your social bonds, you're okay to see them only once in a while. And like, when you want to socialize and it's fine. Like you can, like to say that you're like, you're by yourself 90% of the time is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily mean that you've developed a coping mechanism of feeling comfortable with yourself. It really like depends on the context. 
if the context is that you're spending 90% of your time because you, had you wanted to socialize, you'd have no one to connect with or are you spending 90% of the time by yourself because you actually need the time to achieve the other things that you want and you have those like strong connections that like you don't like you've already like connected so well that like you know anytime you just can just call up the person and like they're yeah. there yeah like there there definitely is an element of it that it's like I'm okay with spending that much time by myself because I'm working on stuff that is geared towards self-actualization building a career for myself doing what I actually care about and what I want to be doing so that's if I didn't have that, then that's like why I haven't been like drinking and smoking and like smoking weed and shit like that. Like I have done so much in my life as a bad coping mechanism, but this actually like this conversation actually is really helping me. I think with these bigger issues that I'm talking about that are going on, it's like, I think that they play a factor but I think for like for me, they've been a big part of like my story about even like dealing with my mental health and shit like that over the years that I think like like you're saying and like we're talking about, it is actually more indicative of me not doing the things that I need to do in my life or actually taking responsibility for the real reasons underlying the mental health and addiction issues and that almost like spending all this time researching all this stuff is almost a, a bad coping mechanism and an addictive quality behavior to it as well to like run away from and not take responsibility for the real issues. So I think to, to tie it together and to wrap this up, I think I do actually need to really stop talking about these bigger things. One, because there's only so much I can really even say about them. I'm not a fucking political scientist. I'm not this or that. And when it really comes down to it, I think that a big part of that narrative almost just needs to be a bit of a, a switch that those aren't the reasons why I've struggled. They're not. Like I, I, they're I, not. I agree, and and that's the thing. Like I agree with you. I do think that they play a part. I just think that they play much less of a part than I've been leading myself to believe for literally like years, like almost the last ten years, like since like the collapse in two thousand eight kind of thing. And a lot of the work I've done recently has been about taking responsibility for my thoughts and my emotions and my way I talk to myself and my behaviors and trying to figure out what is it that I really want to be doing, what's in the way, which I've determined in a lot of ways is almost for, for any one of us, the generally the only thing that's stopping us from achieving any goal we want is ourselves. It's our own fears, our own insecurities, our own senses of like inadequacies, our own negative self-talk and limiting beliefs. That's it. It's not an external thing that is 
It's not someone oppressing us. It's not the system. Those it's things not, can make it more difficult, but not. They can, and and for a lot of people, there they are. Do. There, yeah, for a lot of people, they do. But for most of us, that's not the case. And, and we're, at least it doesn't make it impossible. Just like no, it lot. doesn't make it impossible. And even in those cases, if there, I I, I saw a video um, with. There's this guy, Tom Bilyeu. He has a, a podcast and like a, a show called Impact Theory that he, he interviews a lot of people on. Like a lot of like amazing people. Anyway, he was saying something about that too, where he's like, okay, even if because of some sort of cultural condition or systematic discrimination or oppression of some sort that makes you as a woman or a person of color or something like that have a more difficult time than someone like him or me as a white man in our society even if that's true then okay if it's true if it's a real thing then yeah like we don't need to argue that point or say it's not there but what are you going to do about it are you going to like believe that you can't achieve anything it's, now it's it's what's stopping you or are you going to do what you can and believe what you can positively about yourself that you have a growth mindset not a fixed mindset you, do, have you heard that concept before the difference that between sounds, a growth mindset yeah. and a, a fixed uh mindset so it's it's by this woman carol dweck um, I think she has a book, it might be called like growth mindset or something like that, but it's basically like if you have a fixed mindset, which a lot of people do in our culture, especially I think is related to people dealing with mental health issues and just negative talk and beliefs about themselves and their abilities is that you have a fixed mindset. You think that you are how you are right now with the skills that you have and it just is the way that it is and you just can't do certain things and you're just not good at certain things it's this there's been studies done on kids with and that's what she talks about in her book i'm pretty sure like these studies with like kids who like some have this like fixed mindset that they just are how they are with the skills that they have and stuff like that and that they're just not that good at stuff and they can't really change and then kids that have like a growth mindset and this is true for obviously just people in general and adults but that when you have a growth mindset you know that you can figure things out and you can learn and you can gain skills and how you are now is not how you're always going to be and it's that mindset that anyone can make that shift in mindset too. It just, it might be hard if you have years and years of negative self-reinforcement about who you are and your, your abilities and stuff. You can still make that change. And yeah, so he's just talking about how, like, even if there is things in your way in your life, whether it's things that are standing in your way from some sort of systematic discrimination or oppressive oppressive type of standpoint or whether it's the fucking shitty life you had the emotional baggage you have the shitty fucking things that have happened to you that made you who you are to a large extent and gave you these beliefs about yourself that are a large part of what's underlying 
I think for a lot of people struggling with their mental health and stuff, and this has been true for me because it's like, like I, I said, I've dealt with depression, anxiety, and self-worth issues my whole life. And maybe that self-worth issues and my like feelings of being unloved and unwanted by like my parents and my brother are actually what's at the heart of the negative self-talk and the limiting beliefs and the not doing the actions necessary to get out of the conditions that lead to being depressed and anxious because you don't believe in yourself that you can actually do those things. And so that's like a lot of the work that I've been doing on myself over the last year, just like looking at what do I really want to be doing? What are my fears and insecurities that are stopping me from being able to do that? And where did they come from? And I, and that, like what I just said, is a big part of where those fears and insecurities have come from. And then the question becomes, okay, well, it doesn't matter what happened. Who's going to change it? Is someone else going to change it for you? Is your parents going to change it for you? No. Like, I've been, like, really kind of picking up on and coming across a lot of people with that similar message that it's like, Take ownership over it and take responsibility for all of it, for your thoughts, your emotions, your self-talk, your beliefs, and your behaviors, and take responsibility over changing your fucking life because that ultimately is the actual only thing that is going to change anything. No one else is going to change your life for you. If there's systematic oppression in your life, Sure, like fight it, but also a lot of people like me with some of the conversation I've had about some of these larger political and social issues, me having the beliefs that they've played a more important and a larger role in my struggles with mental health and stuff like that is a way to place blame on external forces and not take responsibility for all the shit that is happening in your own brain and with your own behavior in your own life. And yeah, like I think that is an extremely, extremely important factor. It's like the most important factor. I think that I like to think about as a thought experiment is like actually like, you know, say you end up in prison one day and like you have people who end up in prison and you know, all people in prison are, like, they're all limited in the same way. Some people take that opportunity as, like, okay, I'm not free to go anywhere, but I'm free to learn and develop, like, skills. Prisons generally do have, like, some learning opportunities. You can sign up for courses. And they're like, you know what? This is a time where I can get free education, work on myself, work out, exercise, get in better shape learn a fuck ton of useful things and someone else is like in prison to form gangs and learn more ways of cheating the system once they get out. So it's like you can be limited and oppressed but like you can still like choose choose to make the best that you can under the circumstances while like still fighting to change the oppression. It doesn't excuse the oppression but like the oppression doesn't excuse you not taking the 
little bit of ownership that you can take. And if a person in prison can't find a way to take the little bit of ownership that they have over their life under those limited circumstances, then, you know, certainly in Canada, you can still go, like, a really long way. Yeah. Yeah. and that's Not to say that it's not a real thing that shouldn't be addressed, but... Yeah, for sure. That's probably... Like, I think that was pretty good for, like, connecting that back to what we were talking about and then what we just talked about now. I'm just trying to think of... How do we... How do we wrap this up? Any ideas? (laughs) (laughs) Shouldn't that be your job? Yes, it should. It should. It should. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I know. I know. I know. I just felt I was just teasing. I was just teasing. This also, though, even just to kind of compare this to the last time we tried to record this, this obviously has gone, even though it's still kind of like gone on some tangents and been a bit confusing and I'll, I'll have to have a fun time editing this. Yeah. Um, no, this was a really good conversation though, because it's almost like this is one of the beautiful things about conversations and why podcasts can be so powerful is that through having interesting conversations that make you think about things, it can totally change a belief or change the way that you think about yourself or the world, which is amazing because that can be very beneficial for your life. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will end that there. A couple of the main takeaways, obviously, that, you know, we do have, many of us do have mental health challenges. Many of us had a lot of shitty things that happened to us. And it takes a lot of hard work to rewire your brain and the way that you think, which really um, affects the way that you feel and the underlying beliefs that you have also really can't change unless you focus diligently on changing the way that you think. And when you do that kind of work, it will completely transform your life. Or at least if you want to fix or change or transform anything in your life, then you absolutely need to undergo that type of shift within yourself, in your thinking and your feeling and your behaviors, the way that you act and the way that you show up for yourself and other people and the communities that you're a part of and ultimately for how you show up in the world. And it's tough, but there's a lot that we can do. It can be done and ain't nobody going to fucking do it for you. So we got to help each other out. And hopefully conversations like this help to do that. Until next time.
Okay, so I've got the mic on the proper setting this time. So testing, testing, we're recording right now. And what's up? Hello, hello. <laughs> Speak up, project. Let's get in this, wake up, my, have some chocolate. My, my diaphragm movement is slightly <laughs> limited by the dinner <laughs> that's sitting in my stomach. Okay. Okay. It's so weird. It's so hard to like just go without feeling weird. You know what I mean? <laughs> now I'm saying? Yeah. Underlying neural. Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing about that. I'm not going to put that in. Too legit to quit. <laughs> but then it's. Wait, same, sorry. Can like. You, like... You can just literally repeat that. I just like I, I wanted to see if the rest of the lyrics were still useful, so I got like I literally spaced okay. out a tiny little critical bit. That's okay. <laughs> a, ti- a tiny little critical bit. Um, I've drank and smoked weed fairly consistently throughout my life. It can be interpreted as you were both drinking and smoking weed. I've uh, yeah. No, sorry. Yeah, you the haven't heard about that fucking weed. cannabis drink. Oh, I have heard. I think like almost like just below a panic attack. A sub panic attack. Yeah, like a sub <laughs> sub panic attack. That obviously makes me feel like a stupid lazy piece of shit, pretty much, because I'm not doing what I need to do to actually be successful. I'm self sabotaging through my procrastination <laughs> but it wasn't until this past year that I went and did a big long stint in therapy again where I was doing it through like this online app better help yo better help you're gonna definitely be a sponsor of this <laughs> fucking podcast for real though that's that's like one of my goals I want to make them one of the I want to get them as one of the sponsors on this but yeah I did like Online therapy through BetterHelp. Well, all the fucking shit that I'm stressed well, I was out try- about. I was trying to tell you that because that's what will help with panic attacks in the long run, says CBT guidebook to resolving <laughs> panic attacks. I was literally like trying to like like bring it to surface because you were like, Some I don't of know, it- I don't know. And you're like, well, no, like there's definitely a reason. And like, you don't need to tell me, but like you need to identify it for yourself so that you can overcome, overcome, overcome it, overcome it. Because once you identify the thing, then you can like stop feeling non-specific, like panic about life. Oh, shit. I just recorded an entire intro without switching my built-in computer mic to my Good mic. Motherfucker. It's more important to get it done and get it out there than to try to make it perfect.